Um, let's turn to God's word, Luke 3, as Chris mentioned. We're back in the gospel of Luke, which will be taking us through the rest of the semester. And just as a reminder, what we're going to be doing each week is we're going to be hitting one chapter a week. So obviously, we won't be able to detail and preach through every single thing we find in that chapter, but we'll be taking some significant stories, significant pieces of that chapter in Luke, and then preaching and dialoguing through that. So I want to encourage you, um, if there's something that you really wanted to hear about and learn about in that chapter that Chris or I, um, Will or Anthony, goes through, um, read it on your own. Um, I, I, we're going to go through most of chapter 3 today. I'm leaving you to go home and read the genealogy of Jesus at, uh, at your leisure, okay? Um, uh, tonight you're going to go and do that. But uh, we're going to be considering verses 1 through 22 in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke. But before we do that, let me pray again and we're going to dig in. Gracious God, we are thankful that you are working all the time. You are constantly working the lives of your children, and we're grateful, God, that you are not finished with us. God, as we hear your word this morning, we ask that you give us ears to hear it, that you would transform us by the power of your spirit so that our heart, mind, soul, and strength is rooted and focused on Christ, your son. God, give me the words to speak, set a guard over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. In your name, Jesus, amen, amen. So uh, before we dig into the text, just want to tell you when uh, I was 12, I was baptized and I was in junior high and this was something I had always wanted to do. Ever since I was little, I grew up in the church and I always wanted to be baptized because the baptismal was super high and it overlooked the entire congregation. It was like as high as a uh, high dive. And what was cool and what we really wanted to do as kids is that there was this secret door that was always locked. We could never get into it. And we knew that to go through that secret door, it would lead us up to the top of the baptismal. For, for years and years and years, we as kids were figuring out how do we get into that secret door, and finally it dawned on us, we need to get baptized. And so we can do that. And so, yeah, junior high came around and it was like, yes, I finally uh, have an idea of what baptism is. It's this display to the congregation of the church that I want to be following Jesus. But I get to go into the secret door. And uh, as I went into the secret door, all it really was was just a bunch of stairs that led up to the baptismal. Nothing super huge. I was, I was kind of bummed, to be honest with you. Uh, but, you know, we got to wear this really cool white robe and we were... Uh, kind of stepped into this big bath full of water that was super, super cold. And as I sat there, I was looking out over the entire congregation. I could see them. I thought, this is really cool. This is, I'm really high up. And I got to share my testimony, and I thought, this is really a cool thing. Now, in all seriousness, even though I did want to be in the secret passageway, I got there, I really was thankful to be baptized because I knew being baptized meant that I was displaying to the congregation and to a watching world that I really want to follow Christ. But what I learned later and what I wish I would have known now is that it's so much deeper than a public expression 
of what you believe. It is that, but so much more. In fact, it's, baptism is more than just an external declaration. It's really an inter, internal reality that our baptism points to our true identity. And I didn't know that as a 12-year-old. It was just something that I figured it was an add-on to the Christian life. I had come to faith in Jesus. I had to be baptized. It was true that the word said Jesus, and Jesus commanded us to be baptized, and I'm just sharing it, but there's so much more to baptism than that. And so I hope that as we go through the text today, you're going to see that as a reality as well, that baptism points to an internal reality. It points to our true identity. So Luke sets us up into the story, and we're off the hills of the Advent season, and we've already learned about the birth of Christ and uh, what transpired there. And all of a sudden, we jump into the public adult life of Christ. The Gospels, every single one of them, gives us very, very little about the childhood of Jesus. We don't know much of that other than that he grew in favor with man and with God. He was obedient to his parents. Those two things alone are pretty awesome, right? But every single Gospel, as it introduces Jesus' public ministry, begins with John the Baptist, that eccentric prophet, the cousin of Jesus, as we've learned, out into the wilderness, around the Jordan River, calling people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then we see Jesus coming to John, asking to be baptized. And although Luke doesn't specifically state that, the other gospels state that Jesus does come and ask to be baptized. Why? What's the significance of that? We're going to see that in a minute. But Luke sets us up again in a specific place on a specific time of history. And he starts chapter 3 this way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch or ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And as Luke has done before, he takes a lot of effort in describing who the rulers, the leaders were at that time. And it, not just because Luke's a great historian, but it's to give us an idea that every single one of those names were rulers who were harsh and who brought their authority over the people in a cruel way. It's like... Luke is setting us up to realize that the stage is being set, the play is being set for a new ruler to come in and to upend all of the wicked and injustice rule that is occurring in the region. And verse 3 says that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so Luke tells us that John in the wilderness, this eccentric prophet who had been called already from the, from the very womb of Elizabeth, was called to be a, a prophet who would make ready 
God's people for the Messiah. And so verse 4 sets us up with this idea and this prophecy of ancients of old that the Jews would have recognized and says, as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now this is taken from Isaiah 40. And Israel, the Jews who would have heard this, would have heard, especially in their context where John the Baptist is preaching, this is a message of hope. That God was going to restore his people who were exiled under Roman oppression at the time all those leaders that Luke mentions, that God was going to rescue his people out of exile and he was going to prepare them for the Messiah who was going to come and make all things right. There was going to be freedom. There was going to be salvation. So this was a message of hope. And John the Baptist brought this message, but it was with a message that called for people to, be re- to repent of their sin and to be baptized in the Jordan River. That's what Luke says in verse three again, backing up. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is harsh, just to let you know. For John to have come to Israel and to say you need to be baptized for the repentance of your sins was a very harsh thing to say. Because at that time, baptism primarily was for proselytes. It was for Gentiles who were converting into Judaism. And so baptism was signifying that all these Gentiles, these non-Jews, were being washed from their pagan uncleanliness. And so what John is now saying to Israel right? God's people is, you're just as filthy as the pagans. And you too need to come and be baptized and let the sin be washed away from you. That's pretty harsh words for John to say, especially to Israel. His words weren't only harsh, but they were urgent. This is what he says a little bit later in verse 7. He says, Therefore, or he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, how would you like it every Sunday you come in and Chris and I are like, family, you brood of vipers, so great to see you this morning. Okay, it is, it's harsh. But there's an explanation for that that we kind of have to understand is the idea is that John is saying, Israel, you are looking more like the seed of the serpent than you are the seed of Abraham. That you who should know better as the covenant community, the people chosen by God to be a blessing, you look more like the serpent in the garden than you do the promised seed in the family lineage of Abraham, God's chosen. And he's saying, you need to repent of that. This is harsh. 
But Israel needed to hear this word. And again, it's, it's urgent. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because Israel was saying, well, wait a minute. Abraham, we're from descendants of Abraham. We're God's people. I'm okay. I'm clean. I don't have to repent of my sin. And John is saying, not true. Not true. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What on earth is John talking about? Not only are his words harsh, but they're urgent. It's this idea that there's this axeman already starting to chop down these fruitless trees and he's going to burn him up, whoever this axeman is, that's what we're going to see is the Messiah to come. And John is pleading with Israel, repent, turn from your sin. Get ready for the Messiah. And not only were his words harsh and urgent, but they were also concrete because he says, bear fruit with repentance. Don't just say, I repent, I want to live for you. May your actions show that. Look what he says in verse 10. The crowds then come to John and they ask him, what should we do? And he answered them, he said, whoever has two tunics or coats is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Don't embezzle, don't steal, don't cheat. Soldiers also said, what shall we do? And John said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. See, John was calling the people of God, Israel, the Jews, not only to repent and to confess their sins and to be cleansed as they were dipped into the water, but they were also then to go and live their everyday lives in total allegiance to God. Their life, their words, their deeds, everything was to bear fruit, to prove that they truly were turning away from sin and turning toward God. That's what repentance means. To make a U-turn, to turn around. And John was doing all of this because his vocation, his task was to make people ready for the coming Messiah. So John's words were harsh, they were urgent, they were concrete, and he was doing this work and people thought maybe John was the Messiah. Maybe John was the one that, was, that the Old Testament prophets had actually predicted to come. In fact, they asked him, as they were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, whether he might be the Messiah. And John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John wasn't Messiah. He wasn't the Christ at all. In fact, he was 
the lowest of the low servants. So as we know in that time, people wore sandals and their feet would get totally dirty and messy as they were walking through the streets. And if you were rich enough, you would have a servant who would actually untie your shoes when you walked into the house. Pretty cool, I guess, right? But they did, but, and for the Jews, this was super important. They didn't want to get dirty. And so they'd have somebody untie it. Well, John is saying, look, that servant who unties those shoes, I'm lower than he is. I'm lower than he is. In another gospel, John says, I must decrease and Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, must increase. He's not the Messiah, but he's getting people ready to welcome the Messiah and John continues to say, I baptize with water, but the one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what we'll learn eventually as we move through the gospel of Luke is that this ultimately is pointing to what will happen the day of Pentecost. That we find in Luke's other book, in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God who come to Christ in faith. And this idea of fire is this idea of not only of judgment, but really of for God's people to purify and to cleanse. Like the Messiah is going to come, and he's not only going to cleanse you from your sin, he's going to give the Spirit of God among his people. But his winnowing fork is in his hand, verse 17, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is saying the Messiah to come is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, but he's going to separate those who follow him and those who don't. There will be purification, but there will also be judgment. That's what it means in this metaphor that John gives us, this winnowing fork. Have you ever seen that? Like from the Old Testament times, there's like this winnowing fork. And if you've ever seen, there's still people in Israel who do this today. And they, they have all this wheat that's gathered on the field. And they take, they take this big old pitchfork and they dump it in, or they just drive it into the wheat, they throw it up into the air, and the heavy wheat kernels will fall to the ground while the wind blows the chaff away. And then what you are left with is the actual wheat itself. And John is saying that's what Christ the Messiah is going to do. He's going to separate his people from those who are not. There's going to be purification. There's also going to be judgment. So Israel, get ready. What side will you fall on? Just because you belong to Abraham doesn't mean you belong to God. Who will you choose? That's a question for our world today. Who will you choose? And so, verse 18, with many other exhortations, John, he preached good news to the people. Good news? The axe is laid to the root of the tree to be cut down. He's there with his winnowing fort to separate the chaff and burn it with fire. How is that good news? I want to ask you. I would like to know your thoughts. How is that good news? How is John 
in what he said already good news for not only Israel, but for us. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, great, yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. Justice will happen. There's a God who cares for his people. A God who will fulfill the promises of old. See, there's something else happening here in addition to all that that is good news. And the symbolism here wouldn't be lost on a good Jew. It's this idea that John has now gathered a people into the wilderness to be baptized into the Jordan River. And the symbolism is rich with the true story of God because as Israel knew and would rehearse every year and day after day was the story of God delivering his people from Egypt, this exodus, this bringing out. And he parted the Red Sea so that Israel would walk through it and he brought them out into the wilderness where he provided for them, gave them all that they needed even though they rebelled and wandered forever, but he had promised that he would give them their own land, the promised land, and we see that God brings them through the wilderness by the leadership of Joshua to the Jordan River which God then parts and brings his people through the Jordan to the land of Canaan, the promised land where there's new conquest for Israel. This idea of wilderness and water was significant for Israel because what it did is it pointed to God's covenant faithfulness, that he would never leave them, that the God who promised, I will be your God, you will be my people, was the same God who was bringing to fruition the plan and the promised seed that he talked about all the way back in Genesis 3. This is good news. Yes, the, the Messiah is finally coming. This is now as John gathers Israel into the wilderness to be baptized. It's like this is a new exodus. This is a new conquest. And God is purifying a true Israel. A true covenant community, a missional community, we could say. 
He's purifying them. He's transforming them, getting them ready for the Messiah who's going to come and put an end to all the wickedness to finally rescue his people. That is good news. That is good news. But not for everybody. But not for everybody. Because 19 says, verse 19, but Herod the ruler who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added them, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And you can read in the Gospel of Mark a little bit more detail about this, that Herod married his brother's wife. And John called him out on it. It's like, that's sin. Herod didn't like that too much. The, action, the, the preaching of repentance for sins and to make ready for a true king, a better king, Herod didn't like that either, so he locks John up in prison. And we'll see more of that unfold. Not everybody likes the good news that we need to repent, that we need a savior, that we need to give our complete and full allegiance to the creator of all things. There's still people like Herod who reject that good news today, right? They reject that gospel, the good news of that. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, they'd come out to the wilderness, they'd gone through the Jordan, confessing their sins. Also, Jesus comes, and he is baptized and as he was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Just kind of step with me in imagination here for a second. You're out there in the wilderness. You're by the Jordan. Here's John the Baptist preaching. Jesus comes along. You see this happen. This baptism, this repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, why on earth is Jesus asking to be baptized when we know he had no sins to confess? What's that about? Why is he doing that? Thoughts? Okay. Needed to go through. So identifying, kind of an identification with the people that he came to save. Yeah. Hmm. Great. Other thoughts? Why is Jesus being baptized here with John's baptism of repentance? Yeah. 
Okay. Great. Great. Yeah, so look what, notice what happens, and those are great. He identifies, and we're going to build on that in a second. But he's baptized, he's praying, and as that happens, the heavens, three things, the heavens are opened, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. You know that's the only place found in literature where that image is actually present. Kind of cool, just an aside there. And a voice comes from heaven and says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What, what do you think this voice and this vision meant to Jesus here as he's getting ready to engage in public ministry? Just, just imagine, what do you think that meant? For him. Yeah, encouraging. Jesus, the God-man, fully God, now clothed in humanity. He knows what's before him, right? And there's this validation from God the Father. You're my son. You're the true king. You're the Messiah. Yeah, any other thoughts? You know, in another gospel, it tells us that for John the Baptist, it solidified for him, Jesus truly was the coming Messiah, really was the king. Although John questions that later on in the gospels, right? Are you really the one that was supposed to come? I'm locked up in prison. What's going on? But you'll have to wait for that story. Say that again. Okay. Did you, wait, I just want to make sure our language is right. Did you say? There you go. Thank you. All right. Great, 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 great. Yeah. So we have the, Trini, we have the Trinitarian God at work here. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah.
great. Yeah, baptism points to our true identity. And here, Jesus, identifying with his people, is now affirmed by his Father, empowered for his mission by his, the Spirit of God, showcasing his true identity for the world to see. Yeah, it's pretty powerful. It's almost as if, too, this baptism of Christ is like the beginning of this new exodus action that Jesus himself will actually partake in. That in his baptism, Jesus is pointing back to the exodus before. It's pointing back to the coming through the waters, but it's also pointing forward to what will have to happen. Because later on in Luke, Jesus says, I think it's Luke 12, 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism I need to be baptized with. And he's not referring to this baptism here in the Jordan. He's referring to his death on a cross. And so his baptism not only points to what God promised, but what God is going to do in and through him now as the true son of God who's come clothed in flesh to take on the sin of the world. And it's like Jesus not only had to go through the, the Jordan waters, but he had to go through a much deeper flood. He had to go through the cross, taking on our sin and shame and here's another thing that Jesus' baptism really represents is not only does he identify with his people, he's fulfilling what Israel was supposed to fulfill. That Israel, who was brought through the waters of rescue, they failed in their mission to be God's people fully and perfectly and to be a light to the nations. And Jesus now comes taking on and identifying with Israel passing through the waters, to, not to be cleansed because he's perfect, but to fulfill what Israel was supposed to have fulfilled as they went through the waters. But now he's going to be baptized by taking on the sin of Israel and the sin of all the world upon his shoulders. His baptism pointed towards his death and resurrection. And that is since the very beginning of the church when we are called to be baptized because Jesus calls us to do that, it's we are being baptized into his death and resurrection. Look what Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6. In Romans 6, Verses 3 through 11, Paul writes this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's some good news right there. 
For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we've come to faith in Jesus, we've believed him to be who he says he is. If we have died with him, then we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives now, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus commands his disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 28, to go therefore into all the world and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's this Trinitarian name. It's this new identity that we have in the Trinity. And we've talked about this the last two weeks, that we are a family of servant missionaries. We are a family of God, children of God who've come to faith in Christ. Because of Jesus, we are now servants. Because of the Holy Spirit upon us, we are now sent ones on God's mission. And when we are baptized, we're united with Christ in his death and then participating in his resurrection so that we can engage on his mission to the world. Baptism is not just our public display that we belong to Christ, but it's an internal reality that I have a new identity now. I am now belonging to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My old life of sin has been dead, it has been put to death with Christ. And by his grace and the power of the Spirit, I share in the resurrection of Jesus even now, right now. And because of that, I now get to participate with Jesus on his mission to continue preaching that good news, that Christ came into the world to save sinners and to rescue the world and to make new that which is broken and to heal all that is wrong and to bring justice to injustice, we now who participate in the resurrection of Jesus are called to do that. Our baptism is a representation or a sign that we are a marked out people belonging to God. Baptism doesn't save us. It's faith in Christ alone. But baptism is a sign that we belong to the covenant family of God and that we share in the mission of God. This is super important and so good for us. If you belong to the family of God and you've been baptized, I want to encourage you to live out that true identity in your life. The good news that you belong to Christ you're a family of servant missionaries. Baptism reminds us that he has cleansed us from our sin. Baptism reminds us that when we fail, the power of Christ in us through his spirit will raise us up. Baptism reminds us that we can't save ourselves. Christ alone is the only one that can save. Our baptism is a great sign that we belong 
to God. That's good news. And we're gonna see as we go through the gospel of Luke how that true identity that not only Jesus has at his baptism, but as he gives to other people is actually worked out in the everyday stuff of life. And that's your task this week as you go into your work, as you go into your neighborhoods, is how does the fact that my true identity signified by baptism, how does that get lived out in my relationships, in my parenting, in my job, Am I just internal workings with God and wrestling every day? How is that truly lived out in the everyday stuff of life? That's our task. And we're going to work that out together as we go through this gospel. This is good news. This is good news. Let's pray. Father, we need you. And Jesus, we believe that because you identified with us, in baptism, that we who are baptized now identify with you and the words of God that were spoken to you are the words that we now hear. That when we come to faith in Christ, we now hear these words, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, with you I am well pleased. Cover us, O God, in that truth. We are loved, we are accepted, we are spirit-bathed. Our baptism is a sign of that. Jesus, thank you for coming into the world, identifying with us, and more than that, saving us so that we might live with you even now in your resurrection. God, show us by the power of your spirit what that means for the everyday stuff of life. How do we live this identity out? How do we participate with you, God, on your mission to bring the good news of Jesus to bear in every fabric of life? Help us. Help us to do that together. We trust you in this, God. In your name, Jesus, we ask, amen.